Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Immunology. Two experts in IgG4-related gastrointestinal disease, Professor Matthias Law from Stockholm, Sweden, and Dr. Shonak Majunda from Minnesota, USA, respond to questions from the gastroenterology, hepatology, and rheumatology clinical communities on the challenges of diagnosing IgG4-related gastrointestinal disease, differentiating type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis from type 2, and therapeutic strategies for IgG4-related gastrointestinal disease. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Horizon Therapeutics. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. Hello and welcome to this Touch in Conversation activity. My name is Dr. Shanak Mujumdar and I'm joined by Professor Matthias Lohr. Today we are going to discuss uh, addressing challenges in the diagnosis and treatment of IgG4-related gastrointestinal disease, and we'll start off the discussion with the topic of challenges of diagnosing IgG4-related gastrointestinal disease. So IgG4-related disease is a progressive immune-mediated condition. Uh, this was uh, defined a couple of decades ago and it's a multi-system disease, so it's fairly common for patients with IgG4-related disease to have two or more organs involved at the time of initial clinical presentation. In terms of organs involved, it can essentially involve any organ in the human body, but commonly involves the salivary glands, the kidneys, uh, blood vessels, and in the GI tract, the pancreas, the bile duct, the liver, and the retroperitoneum. What's characteristic of this condition, it often follows a relapsing remitting disease course and can present as uh, enlargement of an organ or a mass uh, that raises the suspicion of cancer. It can frequently affect the pancreatic obiliary tract and um, actually pancreatic obiliary involvement and liver involvement is, is one of the more prevalent phenotypes of this disease. And autoimmune pancreatitis type 1 is essentially the pancreatic obiliary manifestation of type 1 uh, of uh, IgG4-related disease. And uh, the clinical presentation of IgG4-related disease when it affects the pancreatic obiliary system uh, commonly includes jaundice. Uh, patients can present with a pancreatic mass or a narrowing or a biliary stricture. And uh, they may also present with uh, weight loss and abdominal pain. However, cholangitis, uh, which is characterized by jaundice, uh, pain in the right upper part of the abdomen, sometimes with fevers, uh, is a fairly common manifestation of pancreatic obiliary IgG4 disease, uh, especially when it involves the head of the pancreas or, uh, and or the bile duct. So we'll start off with our first question to Professor Lohr here. Um, how are the pancreatic obiliary manifestations of IgG4-related disease diagnosed? And what guidelines or expert consensus statements are available to support the diagnosis? Yeah. Um, as you just said, uh, the symptoms include uh, abdominal pain, for instance, which could be a symptom of acute pancreatitis, and jaundice. So those are the two major symptoms in the majority of cases. And uh, you could then, um, uh, if you suspect this, uh, take the IgG4 uh, level uh, in serum, which would be indicative that this indeed is uh, this IgG4-related disease. And the other things to be done 
with some kind of imaging, CAT scan or MRI to really make this diagnosis. Now, uh, the um, guidelines were both issued by the American College of Rheumatology and the United European Gastroenterology for the IgG4-related diseases. And the ACR has really coined both the cholangitis and also the pancreatic affection as emergency indications for therapy. Yes, I think that, that leads us uh, to our um, second question is uh, when patients present acutely and there's a need to uh, start treatment or initiate some kind of intervention right away, what are some of the important differential diagnosis uh, of this condition of IgG4-related pancreatic biliary disease and, and how does evaluation for these um, disease mimics factor into not only the diagnostic workup, but the need to, uh, to initiate treatment um, as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, in stark contrast to other manifestations of this disease, particularly the manifestation in the pancreas could indeed mimic a pancreatic tumor, not to say a pancreatic cancer. For so that matter, you must positively exclude a cancer and or positively diagnose IgG4-related diseases. If you have a mass in the pancreas and have a high level of IgG4 in serum, this would make the diagnosis um, of uh, IgG4-related disease and autoimmune pancreatitis type 1, as you would call it. If in doubt, you could do some um, endoscopic ultrasound with or without uh, biopsy taking. Uh, and if in doubt, then obviously such a patient should undergo surgery. Even in a center like ours at Kalinska, where we see uh, hundreds of patients with pancreatic diseases a year. Every year we do two to three surgeries in patients where a cancer is suspected, but then in the surgical pathology, it turns out to be um, autoimmune pancreatitis. Now, uh, the same holds true for the cholangitis, which could mimic, mimic cholangiocarcinoma, but normally the picture is a little bit more typical compared to the manifestation in the pancreatic gland. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for highlighting that uh, the clinical dilemma of uh, pancreatic cancer and pancreatic obiliary involvement of IgG4-related disease. I think that's, it's critically important to rule out uh, an underlying malignancy because that will definitely uh, impact the management and, and outcomes of, of a given patient. Uh, can, can we expand maybe a little bit more on uh, presentations with biliary involvement? So, uh, PSC is a, is a fairly common stricturing uh, uh, biliary disease that, when I say common, it's a common differential diagnosis of IgG4-related involvement of the biliary tract. Um, could you maybe share with our audience uh, some similarities or differences between IgG4-related sclerosing cholangitis and, and PSC? Yes, um, the IgG4-related cholangitis, for the most part, really, manifests itself in the distal bile duct and particularly in the intrapancreatic part of the bile duct. So that is one uh, huge difference. This is, of course, accessible not only to MRI, MRCP, but also to ERCP if so needed. And then one could do both a brush cytology or even biopsies with a, with a modern uh, instruments to really rule out uh, this kind of differential diagnosis. Um, for the educated radiologist, I have to say, the differential diagnosis is, uh, I shouldn't say easy to be made, but is, is to be made. Uh, but I say this one more time. I mean, even at our center, uh, two or three cases per year go to surgery 
uh, with a, a suspicion of pancreatic cancer. Now, if this is really doubtful on imaging, what we do, and this is in line with the um, uh, European, but also the uh, Japanese guidelines for autoimmune pancreatitis, uh, we do um, a steroid treatment trial, uh, but with the understanding that you really have to redo the imaging two to three weeks after initiating the trial, uh, the steroid therapy that is. And I mean, the, um, the you know, swelling of the pancreatic glands is really melting away within this short period of time. So in the Japanese guidelines, this response to therapy is a diagnostic criterion. Yes, and, and we'll, we'll talk in a little bit more detail um, in later sessions on the role of steroids in this disease. I think it has, as you rightly point out, both a, a therapeutic role as well as, uh, as a diagnostic role. Um, and just understanding how to use it and, and when to use it as a diagnostic criteria is, uh, is important. So, um, you know, we have, we have heard from you a little bit on, um, okay, this is, you know, somewhat challenging to diagnose even at referral centers. Uh, we should uh, think about cancer always when we are making this diagnosis, make sure we have done due diligence to rule out an underlying uh, biliary or a pancreatic malignancy. Um, you know, what, what strategies can be implemented to facilitate uh, a prompt and an accurate diagnosis. Uh, there's some emerging evidence showing that, that there's really a, a prolonged period of time between the onset of symptoms and established diagnosis in this condition. And, uh, and you indicated in your opening comments about the urgency of making the diagnosis and intervening. Um, do you have uh, strategies that, that could shorten that, uh, that, pe that time period? Uh, I mean, we both come from centers who are very well known for their, uh, you know, ex expertise in pancreatic diseases. But uh, this is not, you know, the case across the board, so to say. So to start from the end, really, is to raise the awareness that there is such a disease as autoimmune pancreatitis or uh, biliary pancreatic disease as part of the IgG4-related diseases. Number one. Number two. Then, of course, as said before, you can measure IgG4 in serum, which is good if it is positive, um, obviously. But we lack really good um, biomarkers for uh, not only the IgG4-related diseases in general, but particularly for some of those um, man organ manifestations. Um, there have been some autoantibodies um, associated particularly with autoimpancreatitis, but due to the lack of commercial availability, you cannot use them in, in clinical practice. Now, the, the really thing important here is that um, you um, think of it, do some imaging in a patient who has jaundice, who has some abdominal pain, um, and maybe even weight loss sometimes, all of which could be indicative of, of a cancer, obviously. So, uh, not different from the differential diagnosis of a pancreatic cancer, one really should follow up such a patient and do not delay any kind of diagnostic measure. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you, uh, Professor Lohr. So um, I, I think reducing the uh, time between symptom onset and diagnosis is critical. And for that, understanding the differential diagnosis, being aware that this is an entity that can often mimic a pancreatic opiliary malignancy, but always rule that out, keep this uh, on the differential list and kind of move through the diagnostic possibilities uh, quickly. So 
Th thank you to Professor Lur for his insights, and thank you all for watching. Next, we will discuss uh, IgG4-related pancreatitis and how to differentiate type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis from type 2 autoimmune pancreatitis. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. I am Dr. Shanak Mujumdar, and I'm joined by Professor Matthias Lohr. The second topic of discussion is IgG4-related pancreatitis, differentiating type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis from type 2 autoimmune pancreatitis. So when we think about type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis, it's a male-predominant disease typically affecting patients in the sixth to seventh decade of life. And some of the common clinical manifestations of this condition uh, actually mimic a pancreatic malignancy. So patients can present with uh, weight loss, with uh, jaundice, with uh, imaging often demonstrating a mass in the pancreas. Some patients may also present with an acute inflammatory pancreatitis type presentation. And uh, the disease may present in um, a more acute presentation or a more chronic form the acute presentations are with obstructive jaundice, with cholangitis, uh, with abdominal pain and a pancreatic mass, although pain is not very frequent. And some patients present with a more chronic form of the disease where it actually mimics chronic pancreatitis and uh, can present with pancreatic atrophy. What's characteristic of this condition is that it often follows a relapsing course. So my question for you, uh, Professor Lohr, is uh, what is the clinical overlap between type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis and type 2 autoimmune pancreatitis? Actually, the overlap is not so huge, to be honest, uh, but maybe for a pancreatic manifestation. Now, IgG4-related disease, that is autoimmune pancreatitis type 1, mostly presents as a homogeneous swelling. It's also called the German Bratwurst in MRI or CAT scan. But it can also have, you know, um, a lesion, a tumorous lesion, a swelling in the, in the pancreatic head. And that would be something you would also see in um, uh, type 2 autoimmune pancreatitis. So that is really maybe the only really overlap. Other than that, uh, it is rather distinct from the uh, type 1 IgG4-related disease, both in, as I said, um, the manifestation within the gland, but then also you rarely see other organ involvement the way you see that in IgG4-related disease slash pancreatitis type 2, but an association with inflammatory bowel disease. So typically, we identify or diagnose rather type 2 autoimmune pancreatitis because say a patient with Crohn's disease has uh, uh, still abdominal pain while under uh, ongoing um, therapy and then the, the imaging shows uh, some swelling or even uh, a tumorous lesion within the pancreas. Uh, and obviously these patients with IBD who are under therapy do not need an extra anti-inflammatory uh, therapy for their uh, type 2 autoimmune disease, but obviously, even if it is described here as rare, which is true, some therapy of the exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, so what you heard is that uh, th there's actually very little overlap. These appear to be fairly distinct uh, clinical entities. There's probably some similarity on the imaging side of things, but Type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis is an IgG4-mediated disease, whereas type 2 is not. Um, and type 2 autoimmune pancreatitis has an association with inflammatory bowel disease, 
which is actually a, a defining feature of this condition. So uh, uh, the next question um, gets at how we diagnose uh, AIP type 1 and how the diagnostic criteria uh, of this condition maybe differ from, um, from other uh, forms of AIP. Yes. Um, I would like to follow the so-called HESORT criteria, which were actually developed by Mayo Clinic uh, 10 or 15 years ago, I believe. And this is a very nice acronym because it includes all of the five elements, which is histology. So if you take a biopsy or have a surgical pathology of a mistakenly um, resected pancreatic uh, head, uh, then you would see this what is called storiform fibrosis, which is very typical. Even a venulitis, obliterative phlebitis in the tissue is uh, very, very uh, specific. And then obviously uh, the IgG4 positive plasma cells, more than 10 per high power field, are the diagnostic threshold which really determines that this is IgG4-related disease that is autoimpacatitis type 1. Then you may have other uh, features uh, which are maybe not so prominent. Um, then in imaging, as I said, uh, typically um, in the pancreas it is a swelling of the gland, which again is called German bratwurst. There is a contrast in Hassen at the margin, the rim around the pancreas, very, very typically and if there is also other organ involvement of the pancreatic of the bile duct, then you see the contrast enhancement in the distal bile duct going through the pancreatic gland. So that is uh, in imaging very very typical. With regard to um, what you can measure in the blood, the serology that is, um, it is of course IgG4 in serum. Sometimes only the IgG4 total is elevated. And then uh, the other organ involvement would be, for instance, that you see, um, you know, uh, the immune-related cholangitis, which uh, we mentioned before. But then also there are very pathognomonic, I should say, lesions in the kidneys. Uh, that is not to say that the patients have some kind of renal insufficiency, but the, the lesions in the kidneys are pathognomonic and together with the swelling of the pancreatic gland, and maybe some affection of the bile ducts make the diagnosis um, uh, of um, uh, autoimmune pancreatitis type 1. And finally, if in doubt, uh, you can even use the response to therapy, that is to glucosteroid glucocorticoid treatment, as a diagnostic measure, because within two weeks, uh, the swelling of the pancreatic gland and the stenosis in the bile ducts should vanish. They really melt like ice in the sunshine. Yeah, I, th I think that's a great summary of uh, the high sort criteria. Uh, as we have discussed previously, the glucocorticoid response can be diagnostic, but there, there needs to be some pretest probability of the disease when we're, when we're kind of trying to establish the diagnosis with a response to steroids. I think you bring out a, a very relevant point of the rim enhancement that's a very characteristic feature on imaging, as well as uh, looking for other organ involvement, because oftentimes it's not the pancreatic uh, features on imaging, but the presence of, uh, um, of clearly indicative uh, involvement of other organs uh, is what helps clinch the diagnosis. Uh, and uh, you, you had mentioned imaging patterns. Uh, would you want to elaborate on that uh, a little bit more here? Yes. Uh, as said, uh, you know, this uh, general swelling of the gland is the most typical, but you may have, as mentioned before, 
a tumor, which simply means a swelling at one you know, location within the gland, which could mimic a pancreatic cancer, and sometimes even you know, manifestations uh, at two or three sites within the pancreatic gland. This is rather rare, but these are the two, three major manifestations of autoimpancreatitis within the pancreatic gland. Yeah, that's wonderful. So multifocal stricturing is often present and um, the absence of duct dilation should, should raise the possibility of autoimmune pancreatitis. The main pancreatic duct is often not dilated, yeah. but strictured down in, in more than one place. Uh, so given that, you know, we have been talking about cancer quite a bit in the context of AIP, uh, I think one of the questions that come up is, uh, is AIP associated with an increased risk of malignant diseases, either in the pancreas or outside the pancreas, and how does that risk differ uh, between uh, type 1 and type 2 AIP? Your thoughts on that, Professor Lohr? Yes, um, stemming from the Honolulu uh, uh, Consortium, we looked retrospectively in that, and there's also a prospective study uh, from Japan which shows there are malignancies associated with autoimmune pancreatitis. Now, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the number one hit is not pancreatic cancer, but gastric cancer. And there is uh, maybe some rationale to that because there has been shown that there is a molecular mimicry between you know, antigens, autoantigens in the pancreatic gland and uh, uh, H. pylori. However, we and others could not show a direct link or a presence of H. pylori DNA or bacteria in the pancreas. So the mechanism must go through the manifestation or presence, I should say, of H. pylori in the stomach, really. Now, with regard to pancreatic cancers, um, this is an interesting story. One third is synchronous. That is to say, you diagnose um, a lesion in, in, in the pancreas, which turned out to be arteriomyocarditis, but you also have at the same time a pancreatic cancer. So there, and that we have learned from a pathologist, you may have an autoimmune uh, reaction surrounding a pancreatic cancer. It is obviously fundamentally different if you turn to the metachronous um, occurrence of pancreatic cancer, two, three, four, and five years after the diagnosis of autoimmune pancreatitis, this clearly uh, is not something which occurred together with the um, autoimmune pancreatitis, but developed later on. What we do not know yet is whether this is an obligatory pre-neoplastic condition, such as uh, ulcerative cholangitis for the uh, UC-related colorectal cancers, or whether there is another mechanism involved. Thank you for your uh, insights on this important topic, and I'd like to thank uh, Professor uh, Lohr uh, for his comments, and thank you all for watching. Next, we will discuss therapeutic strategies for IgG4-related gastrointestinal disease. Thank you. Hello, I am Dr. Shonak Majumdar, and I'm joined by Professor Matthias Lohr. The third topic of discussion is therapeutic strategies for IgG4-related gastrointestinal disease. So when we think about treating pancreatic biliary manifestations of IgG4-related disease, the first line of therapy is glucocorticoids. And uh, we'll typically use uh, prednisone or prednisolone, uh, depending on what's locally available. And uh, here in the US, we'll start with a dose of 40 milligrams of prednisone once a day, we'll continue that for a period of at least four weeks, assess response, and then start tapering by five milligrams. 
the need for continuing glucocorticoids or any other form of maintenance of remission therapy uh, is not critical in every patient because some patients will respond to treatment and not develop a relapse. And so we do not routinely uh, place patients on some form of maintenance therapy. However, recognize that relapses are not infrequent in this condition. And so it's, it's really important to have a plan in place for monitoring these patients for relapse and then treat a relapse uh, when it happens. And, and the choices of treatment for a relapsing disease uh, include uh, steroids or prednisone, but there are a few other classes of medications that can be considered, and we'll discuss that in detail uh, with Professor Lohr here today. So the, the first question uh, for you, Professor Lohr, is how do you assess the response to glucocorticoid therapy in patients presenting with uh, pancreatic or biliary manifestations of IgG4-related disease, and what results, either clinical or imaging-wise or biochemical, uh, would you use then to, to consider uh, starting a steroid taper? Um, obviously, the, the first response to be observed and monitored is the clinical response, that is, uh, that the patients do no longer have abdominal pain, uh, that the jaundice obviously is, is uh, going away, um, that they put up some weight, which in part may also be due to the steroids, obviously. And then uh, if you do a follow-up imaging that you see that, uh, again, um, the thickening of the biliary duct system and the pancreas is reduced. Uh, you can also use the so-called IG4-related disease responder index, um, uh, which is a very nice tool to basically have an objective measurement, uh, uh, not to say an index which you can put in your patient records. Um, the um, audium pancreatitis type 1 um, is responding as the type 2 very well to the first uh, you know, course of steroid uh, treatment, about 80% in the first uh, go, so to say. The rare patients with autoimmune pancreatitis type 2, which have not yet developed an IBD, also respond very well, and they do not have any kind of um, uh, uh, you know, recurrence of the disease, and the recurrence rate, obviously, uh, in, in autoimmune pancreatitis type 1 is, is much higher. Um, now, um, you must follow those patients for a variety of reasons. Number one, the already mentioned risk for a recurrence, then um, as uh, we and others have shown, there is a tendency for the atrophy of the pancreatic glands and with that comes pancreatic excrement sufficiency which needs to be treated. Again, an ACR indication for um, um, emergency treatment, so to say. Then they may also develop diabetes uh, later on, for instance, um, and then there still is the risk uh, to develop a cancer further on. So those patients need to be in your follow-up, in your surveillance, in your clinic to be monitored and uh, taken care of in case there is something uh, which is developing, say, endocrine, exocrine sufficiency or um, uh, recurrence. Yeah, thank you. I, I think one of the key takeaways there is the response to uh, steroids. And uh, if you reassess the patient in a few weeks and you're not seeing a steroid response, that should really put the diagnosis in doubt uh, because this disease, both type 1 AIP and type 2, AI, uh, type 2 AIP are both 
exquisitely steroid responsive. Uh, yes. The next question uh, then kind of, you know, linking to that uh, role of steroids is, you know, what are the limitations of glucocorticoid treatment? We have both uh, stated that steroids are the first line of treatment. The disease usually responds really well to steroids. So what are some of the limitations and are there any steroid sparing options that are currently available for treating pancreaticobiliary IgG4 related disease? Let me just briefly go back on the first course of glucocorticoid treatment. The ones who have very high IgG4 levels, uh, you could also monitor the dip in IgG4 in serum, for instance. But if they have uh, other organ involvement, those are the ones who are more prone to have a recurrence. Number one, we have learned, this is uh, some evidence from some Japanese studies, that they are those who profit from a low steroid maintenance therapy. So those are the ones where would go on with a very low five milligram dose, say up for a year. Now, um, what could you do to, uh, to take other drugs? You mentioned already um, there are other immunosuppressive uh, therapies such as athotriopine, metotrexate, uh, mycophenolate, and others. Um, we have again learned from the rheumatologists who are very much more, how should I say, uh, used to use uh, biologicals that one should hop over the use of so-called other immunomodulant therapies and go directly to a um, um, uh, uh, biological that is um, a CD19, CD20 um, uh, uh, inhibitor or antibody rather, which of course is off-label use for the time being. So uh, we have um, learned again that if you have a relapse, if the patients are not responding to the first uh, 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 glucosteroid therapy that we use uh, rituximab. Yeah, and, and you bring up a good point about some of these uh, uh, maintenance therapies or, or treatment options for relapsing disease are, uh, are off-label choices, but uh, uh, fairly widely used in clinical practice. And w would you mind sharing kind of your uh, view of the use of uh, rituximab in this disease, uh, which seems to be uh, a fair bit of accumulating evidence supporting its, uh, its clinical role uh, in, in maintenance and in treatment of relapsing disease? Um, maybe I can go back a couple of years where we played around with all of those athothriopine, metotrexate, mucophenolate, and so forth. And it was always difficult to handle these patients, right? So there is not only the uh, better uh, clinical and therapeutical effect of the biologicals, there's also the relatively ease of handling this. And I say this one more time, this is something with regard to the rituximab we learned from the, from the uh, rheumatologist. So if we have a recurrence, we do not play around with other uh, drugs. We use off-label um, uh, rituximab. And uh, in my personal experience, uh, those patients do not have another bout or recurrence um, uh, of the disease. So it is a really a very good therapeutic um, principle which we can come to elaborate on a little bit further, I suppose. Yes, and, and I agree with you that in our clinical experience, uh, rituximab um, seems to not only be effective in inducing remission, but maintaining remission um, yeah. in the long term. So it's, its role in the management, especially of the type one 
AIP patients, yes. as you referred to in your earlier comments, that relapses are really infrequent in type two. So this, this discussion about maintenance therapy and how to treat relapses is really pertinent to the management of type one AIP and, and not, not type two. But in that group, especially those with biliary disease with extensive extrapancreatic yeah. involvement, a higher risk of relapse, uh, we are searching for a maintenance therapy option uh, that uh, can maintain remission and is uh, tolerated well by patients. Uh, so on, on that uh, theme, um, what are some of the emerging treatments uh, that are currently in uh, clinical trials and cl clinical development for treating pancreatic or biliary IgG4 disease, and how do you think these would impact the future treatment landscape? If I may briefly go back to the um, treatment uh, with steroids and um, uh, what you do in the biliary tract disease. This is not evidence, but uh, I shouldn't say eminence between some of us here on this side of the pond uh, that we add ursodexolcolic acid uh, if there is an immune-related cholangitis. Um, uh, it seems as if the patient do better with regard to the cholangitis. Again, there is no evidence in, in our European guidelines. We have mentioned this, um, but um, uh, that is something we are going to follow up, particularly for the biliary um, affection within the IgG4-related disease complex. Now, what is new on the block for the treatment in the future? Well, we mentioned the uh, off-label um, uh, medications, but there are clearly um, a whole array of um, drugs um, in clinical um, studies, some of them rather late, particularly phase three uh, with the anti-19 antibodies, which um, are probably similar to the uh, anti-CD20 antibodies, the best way to tackle uh, from an immunological point of view this disease. Um, so um, that is something we are looking very much forward that those drugs which are then will be registered and approved for IgG4-related disease will become available for us and for our patients. Yeah, that would be wonderful to see the, the therapeutic choices expand, um, especially for the treatment of patients with, with relapsing disease. Uh, thank you for your comments. Uh, so uh, uh, thank you, Professor Lohr, for all your insights, and uh, thank you to our audience for watching and listening. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Matthias Law and Dr. Shonak Majunda, for your practical insights. And thank you to our audience for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access further content on this topic on Touch Immunology at www.touchimmunology.com. Touch.